Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Good morning. It's a wonderful privilege uh, to be able to open up God's word again. Um, this is uh, the section of Luke is uh, something I'm, I really think is so powerful. Let me pray since we're going to talk about prayer and uh, welcome to all those watching at home as well. My name is Stephen Abbott in case you're wondering who I am. I'm uh, one of the staff here. Heavenly Father we um, just heard that uh, you are ready as a generous father to give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, we ask for that right now so that we might uh, understand your word, uh, that we might embrace it and then follow its instructions to your glory. Please guide us and direct us so that we might live for you and not against you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, this morning we turn to our second in the series of Fig Tree in Bloom looking at stature or vision. Now fig trees grow to be massive in stature. There's one in Milton in the Mil Mike Ryan Park that our kids used to climb when I was the senior minister um, in Milton Ulladulla, well the only minister in Milton Ulladulla in the early 80s. And uh, we used to take our children up there and they loved climbing on the lower beams. For the eight years we were there, we'd regularly go up there. And now, 40 years later, the tree has grown even more beautiful, more magnificent, and my grandkids can now play on the same tree. It's a tree which sets forth, as it were, a vision of strength, of longevity and beauty, which continues to bring joy to generation after generation. And we here at Fig Tree want to also have a stature that casts a vision of spiritual strength, longevity, and beauty. 
We want to be a household of faith which provides the joy of Christ to generation after generation of people. Our vision of a preferred future continues to be that we be a household of the living God that shows forth faithful, adventurous and compassionate ministries. But how are we to maintain and resource such a stature or vision? Our reading concerning this Jesus' teaching on prayer from Luke 11, I believe, provides an excellent way forward. Its contents, the contents of the prayer, show us the very heart of God and by that fact show us what God wants us to be about, the sort of qualities of life. But first, let me ask you to finish this statement. On my tombstone, I would like written dot, dot, dot. What would you like written on your tombstone? Now, some of you might remember the um, famous uh, person, James Dobson, who was focused on the family fame. And when his father died, the family had a gathering to discuss what they would put on their father's tomb. Stone. And uh, during the discussion, uh, the wife of uh, the man who had died, uh, James Dobson's mother, said, well, I know what I want on mine. I told you I was sick. <laughs> I reckon she would have been a great mum and a great grandma. Lots of fun in that household. In the end, they chose just two words for Jane Dobson dad. He prayed. Not a bad epitaph, is it? Wouldn't mind that one on mine. Some of you may be familiar with the famous young Scottish preacher, Murray McShane who had an incredible impact on the city of Dundee for the gospel in the 19th century. He died at 29 in 1843. But even at that young age, he left an indelible mark on the spiritual landscape of the Christian church in that city. Tours of McShane's church were conducted by an elderly gentleman. And sometimes as they were doing the tour, someone would ask him, What's the secret of this young man's powerful ministry? And the man would take them into the McShane's vestry, his little study on the side of the church. And there stood an old leather chair with two indents in it from elbows where he knelt to pray. It could be said that McShane was indeed a man of prayer and that his ministry that stature and vision flowed from his faithful prayer life. Now, I wish you could take you to my office chair to see those two dints, but there's only one, and there's no guessing what that one is. <laughs> How do the stories of the great giants of prayer and faith make you feel? Like spiritual fairy floss having no substance? Well, don't do that. This is not, don't tell these stories to make us guilty, but to encourage us to see that prayer is vital to the life of the church. You see, it's not that we don't pray, is it? It's just that we need to still learn to bring prayer to the forefront of our lives and our ministries, uh, not just to remain in the, in the background, to be our default Andrew Bonner throws out a telling challenge. Brethren, why so many meetings with our fellow men and so few meetings with God? 
Now, for Luke's gospel, prayer is foundational expression of Christian faith and life. And Jesus is the very model par excellence of how to pray aright. In Luke, Jesus is always at prayer. It's in prayer with his father that Jesus finds guidance and the resources to be able to do the ministry he exercises. He's not just our model for prayer, though. He's also our teacher of prayer. And so we find here in Luke 11, 1, that the disciples, having seen Jesus pray, say, teach us how to pray. As you taught John, as John's disciples were taught, John the Baptist's disciples were taught to pray. In answer to that request, Jesus provides both a pattern of prayer, the contents of prayer, and also the resources and the motivation to be able to pray and fulfill what the prayer calls for. So let's look at this. First of all, our household prayer. What an expansive prayer this is. It begins on the mountaintop of God's heaven's purposes, the the glorification of God's name, hallowed be your name, and your kingdom come. And then it moves through descending to the valley of humanity's basic needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us, defend us in our midst of our temptations. This prayer reveals God's adventurous vision for the world and also his compassion towards it. He wants the kingdom to break in, his rule to break in. And yet he offers forgiveness and the provisions to be able to live in this world. He teaches that at every turn, God's household of faith are dependent upon our father and that he's actually interested in both his household embracing his adventurous vision and then secondly, compassionately providing all his household needs to achieve his vision. Now, the little outline I'll be using, not the content of the outline, but the outline came from a, a guy named Mark Chan. I heard this many years ago in Singapore and found it very helpful. And I hope you do too. First of all, we look at our position. We are to be faithfully dependent. When you pray, say, Father. Disciples understand that they are dependent upon the attentiveness of the Heavenly Father. Their position is that of humble dependent children. We need to ever give expression to our dependent relationship. Adam and Eve got into trouble, as did the people of Israel, when they forgot who they were. They were the creation of God. They were God's image bearers. They were his treasured possession, his royal priesthood. They were a people of grace. We mustn't forget that we are children, that we are little ones. We are children of grace who need the resources of God for life and therefore ministry. Prayer is the essential way we fulfill our first part of our vision to be faithful. Secondly, we see in this prayer, we are to pray about our purpose and our passion. Hallowed be your name. Our consuming purpose and hopefully passion is for the honour of God's name. Living by God's design will lead to God being glorified. Since we are children of God, we must reflect the family likeness. One of the past great theologians, Karl Barth, wrote this about Christians. 
We're to be a provisional display of our original intention. Let me say that again. We had to be a provisional display of our original intention. Our original intention was we were made in the image of God. We were designed to reflect the glory and grace of God in the world. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do. That's what humanity was called to do. But we fell. We slipped away from that. But when the grace of God comes to us through the work of the Spirit, we are born from above. We are now a provisional display of what we will be in heaven. Back to perfection to being right with God and radiating his glory. So ask the questions. Are our decisions in life and ministry determined by the degree to which the Lord God's name is glorified? Or are there other personal passions and desires prompting our life and our ministry choices? Are we willing to be adventurous in seeking the glory of our Father in every relationship, in every conversation. See our priority, your kingdom come. It's God's kingdom which we want to come in, not our empire. The kingdom comes near and is present when the gospel is preached and its rule is experienced. We can see that in chapter 10, verses 9 to 11, of which this part of this is part of an ongoing teaching on discipleship by Jesus. So are we private empire builders or are we kingdom of God builders? What is our priority in life and ministry? Are we investing in the kingdom of God and letting its agenda flow through us? Or are we more concerned about stroking our own egos? Do we live by kingdom destinations or are we a little more short-sighted than that? Only having a vision for our empire. Are we willing to be adventurous in seeking God's kingdom, his kingdom rule breaking in on people's lives? Is that, are we adventurous enough to do that day by day? Are we people who only look in mirrors to see ourselves and our surrounds? Or are we people that look outside of windows? We're still aware of our surrounds. We're still aware of our own church and our own family. We see what's there. We're busy about that ministry, but we are looking out of windows into the world to see the broken and lost people, but also to be able to celebrate the wins that we see in kingdom work elsewhere. It might be in Myanmar. It might be um, in Ethiopia, and we can celebrate what God is doing in his kingdom, growing his church. Our turf might sometimes be hard and we don't see much growth in the fig tree, but we press on and we still celebrate what we see happening elsewhere because we are kingdom-focused people. D, our provision. Give us each day our daily bread. Here we move from, as it were, heaven and we're starting to move into the, the realm of our daily lives. See, God's interested not just in the big pictures, but also the daily details. Our life together depends on the thread of God's providential and compassionate provisions, both material and spiritual. Each and every day is a good day to express our dependence. Are we willing to be adventurous in our prayers for God glorifying and kingdom stretching ministries.
Maybe we don't pray adventurously because we actually don't want to be adventurous in mission. We're fearful that if we start praying big pictures about our ministry to our neighbours and our work colleagues and the people we play sport with and our wider family, that we might, have, we might be called to duty, uh, that God might want us to put legs on our prayers. But pray the large prayers we must, and we must pray that, remember, God will provide us with the resources, as we'll see in a moment very clearly, to be able to fulfil these large vision prayers. E, our penitence. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. This can be one of the most difficult prayers to pray in this prayer. We saints share solidarity with sinners. We're all in the same pool of evil. There is no place for self-righteousness in the Christian life. It's therefore essential, that is, it's obedient and good for us, therapeutic, for us to admit our sins before God, to come clean. We come clean, though, to a God who is rich in mercy, compassion, and abounding in steadfast love. It's clear that those who confess their sins with confidence are those who understand the necessity to show forth family likeness by forgiving others who have sinned against us. The reality is, once we've looked into the mirror of our own corrupt heart, Father, forgive us our sins, it's easier to extend forgiveness to those who offend or have abused us. If we can never get to this point of extending pardon to others, it will breed bitterness and hinder our spiritual life. Indeed, it's an actual contradiction of who we claim to be, the children of the Father, image bearers. You see, those who receive compassion extend compassion to others. Our vision is to be a compassionate people. That means we must be a forgiving people. And our forgiveness does not depend necessarily, indeed at all, on the person who we're forgiving to respond the way we want. God's love to us is unconditional. So I ask you to stop right now and ask the Lord to show you the names of people you have not forgiven. It might help to ask, who has hurt me? Have I truly forgiven them? The final petition, our penitence, our protection, sorry. Lead us not into temptation. Temptation operates in the areas of our desires. The world is alluring, it is attractive, and it offers us the quick fix for what ails us. Um, I still remember the days when we had little kids and even when we've still got little ones and grandkids, still had dummies. And kid gets hungry when you're shopping and you think as a rescue, you dip that dummy in, you hope it'll get you home, but you know it's a quick fix and it won't last. Isn't it a nightmare when you're going shopping with your grandkids and you get all your children and you get to the checkout and they start saying, I'm hungry, mum, I'm hungry, mum, I'm hungry, dad, I'm hungry, pa. And all there is on the counter is lollies. <laughs> Whose plan was that? <laughs> but 
Those quick fixes don't satisfy the deep hunger. And that's what the world offers us. That's what temptation's about. It's a quick fix for what ails us. There are many pitfalls. Christian living, ministry is dangerous work, so we need to be alert and draw on all the resources of the Lord to stand on the evil day of testing. Last week, I, um, Sue and I spent some time on our way back from visiting our ageing mums with uh, two, two of what were our best friends in youth fellowship. Um, Iris was Sue's best friend and Peter was the guy that introduced me to ISCF that led to my conversion. So we have a deep connection over many years, but we're, we see each other very rarely these days. Once we were talking, it was so, it was filled us with grief to hear how one, one of Peter's family has abandoned the faith because of the behaviour of another Christian. Now, they've got to take responsibility for their choices. I know that. But the stumbling block was a leader who acted inappropriately with bad behaviour. My friends, we need to resist temptation because it doesn't just impact our own lives. It impacts those around us. Praying this element of the prayer is foundational to living in accord with our vision to be faithful. Are we especially aware of our particular areas of weakness and vulnerability? Write some of yours down. It may help to ask this question. If Satan wanted to blow you out of the water, how would he do that? Where are your areas of vulnerability? Write them down and put things in place. And then remember that it would be foolish to pray that God to deliver you from temptation, but then place yourself in the places of temptation. If you struggle with alcohol, then you need to make sure that you behave inappropriately. Don't put yourself in places where that becomes a great temptation. If you struggle with pornography on the web, then you need to put places of accountability and let people know the sort of websites you visit to protect you, to be a protection from that area of weakness in your life. If you're a person who struggles with talking too much and maybe passing on gossip is a danger or slander, help your Christian friends to hold you accountable. Make yourself vulnerable so you will keep resist temptation and that I'll resist temptation and together we'll help each other follow God's word. In this, in a sense, this last petition, lead us not into temptation, brings us back to the first. It's like we've come full circle because you cannot honour and hallow the name of God if you give in to temptation. How are we to understand the role then in the big picture of the Lord's Prayer? Imagine for a moment uh, a teenager's just been introduced to Algebra, you might remember those days. If you're not good at maths, you think, what, what's A, B and C got to do with numbers? Who's confusing the alphabet with mathematics? What's going on here? But you've got a father who's a mathematics teacher. All the resources are there, but because it's a you know, father-daughter thing, she struggles and struggles and struggles. Then in desperation finally says, Dad, help me. I just can't work this out. And then the resources are available and she can work it out. The Lord's Prayer is a bit like that. We live in the household of God. We're told in Timothy it was the household of the living God. The resources of the Father 
are available to us, but so often we struggle and go our own way instead of being dependent. Yet all the resources we need are available if we will only ask for them. Father is waiting, keen and ready to help, as we shall now see. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote, Prayer, the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. Prayer, the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. So Jesus gives us a model for prayer, a pattern or structure, the contents of prayer, which range from the glory of heaven to the grind of daily life. Having taught us how to pray, he clearly knows our human capacity to fail to follow the instructions. So what does he do? Because he's a great teacher. He knows we're feeble and frail. He gives us some encouragement to pray. And that's what we turn to next. Firstly, there's the call to persistent prayer. Jesus' teaching here moves from the contents of prayer to the attitude of, if you like, the mindset of prayer, to ask, seek and knock. The point of the parable about the embarrassed host who has some friends turn up and he has no food for them and hospitality the ancient world meant he had to provide food so he gets up, rat-a-tat-tats at his mate's house knowing they've got bread and he won't go away so he persists and he persists and finally the guy gives the bread. The whole point of that story Jesus gives us in verse 9. So I say to you, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The verbs literally mean keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's a word of encouraging us to actually pray. It's not that God won't answer us. It's just an encouragement to pray. A Christian writer captured the point so well when he wrote, the main lesson about prayer here is just this. Do it. Do it. Do it. Prayer ought to be to the Christian in the church what breathing is to the body. We barely have to think about our breathing. You sitting there now saying, you've got to keep breathing, I've got to keep breathing. It just happens. Even when you're singing, you just breathe. It's necessary for our survival that we do that. And it's necessary for our spiritual survival that we remain aligned with God's vision for us in his church and individually, that we be a people of prayer. But there's more encouragement. Not only are we to be encouraged to persistently pray, keep praying, we are also, to, we get persistent answers. Everyone who asks receives he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, the door will be opened. What tremendous encouragement to pray. Unlike the grouchy friend in the parable who finally gets out of bed to provide what's needed, our father never slumbers or sleeps, we're told in Psalm 121. He's awake, he's ready to answer. Does he already know what we need? Yes, of course he does. As verse 13 will tell us. But we need to express our need in God. God wants us to be dependent people. We need, as our vision states, to be faithful. But in case his disciples feel they may not get the answers they want, well, they might not. If they're fearful, they might not get the best answers. 
the text tells us they will get the best answer, the best answer possible, because our father is um, compassionate and has abundant generosity. So we come to personal attention. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Clearly, if parents who are corrupt to the very core of their being know how to look after their children, how much more does Father God know how to give the best to his own children if only they will ask? And the best is himself, the Holy Spirit. It's a personal touch from God, the very same Spirit that directed and guided the life of Jesus. Uh, the, the Anglican Bishop of bygone days, J.C. Ryle, wrote some brilliant things. Here's one of the great sentences he wrote. Prayer obtains fresh and continued outpourings of the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit comes once in the sense and fills us and we're born from above, but the Scriptures teach that Spirit keeps being given to enable and empower for ministry, for the challenge we face. Jesus teaches here that the Father will provide the spiritual resources for the church to do what he's just said they need to do in chapter 10. Two big ideas for ministry are contained for disciples in chapter 10. It's mission and compassion ministries. Mission for sharing the kingdom of God and showing what the kingdom looks like by exercising compassion. And the Spirit of God will enable us to do that. It also teaches that we need to keep Jesus as centre focus. We're to be Marys, not Marthas who are busy trying to impress Jesus. We're to be people who are simply impressed by Jesus. And the Spirit of God will enable and empower us to be able to do that. It's the Spirit that will enable us to hallow the Father's name, to bring in his kingdom into people's lives, to provide our daily bread and enable us to forgive others and resist temptation. So Luke 11, 1 to 13, provides the contents of prayer, a pattern for prayer to be faithful, adventurous and compassionate. It provides encouragement to pray. We will get answers which empower us to be faithful, adventurous and dependent. Well, I commence this morning by suggesting that to be fig tree in bloom, we want a stature which casts a vision, a spiritual vision, of strength, longevity, and beauty. A household of faith which provides the joy of Christ to generation after generation. Our vision therefore remains to be a household of the living God that is faithful, adventurous, and compassionate. I've endeavored to show that Jesus' teaching on prayer can assist us to keep our vision before us and provide the resources to fulfill the vision. Writer Philip Brooks said this, if people are people and God is God, to live without prayer is not merely an awful thing, it is a foolish thing. And the voice of Jesus comes to us today and says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. During the Vietnam War, and um, it was at, all wars are tragic and terrible, but um, the 
armed forces from overseas found themselves with a problem when they were in the jungles. There was a vine which they called the wait a minute vine. It had little prickles on it that would simply stick to you and catch on. If you didn't stop to take them off, they discovered it would just keep, it'd go with you and wrap around you and then it would take forever to get them off. So as soon as they stuck to them, they took the time to unravel themselves. They had to wait a minute to untangle themselves from that which would get in their path. We need to do this in life and in ministry. We need to take the time to wait and, uh, and take off the entanglements and the pressures of life. Let them fall from us so we can see the wood for the trees. We can see God's kingdom from our own agendas that we might be fig tree in bloom, faithful, adventurous, and of course, compassionate. The call to discipleship is a call to kingdom work involving mission and compassion. Ministries we ought to engage in, in a way which are faithful to God, adventurous in that they stretch us beyond our comfort zones for kingdom work, and that are compassionate, that are people sensitive and people focused the resources for which we've discovered today are found in prayer. Prayer, prayer provides the stature for the vision. So Jesus has called us to pray and the Father's voice echoes from the Mount of Transformation in chapter 9. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. May we be known as a church of stature, a fig tree in bloom because we listen and we pray.